Amen. Amen. God bless you, Sister Donette. Thank you for your ministry with us today. Well, welcome to each one of you, those of you who are here in the sanctuary worshiping with us today, and those of you who are online. We welcome you, and indeed, we wish you all a wonderful and blessed Easter season. Well, today on this Good Friday, we remember and we celebrate Jesus for what he has done for us. We thank him for the cross indeed, and we remember the sacrifice that he has made. This event is so significant that it is recorded in all four Gospels. And today we'll look at the account from John chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me please to John chapter 19. Starting from verse 1, it reads, If you are able to, would you stand as we read God's word? Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. And then to verse 16. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to the place called Place of the Skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, change it from the King of the Jews to he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. From then, the disciple took her into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let us pray. Father, indeed, we thank you. We thank you, God, for so many things, but indeed, above all, we thank you for the cross. And Lord, as we read this account and this scripture, 
we're reminded that it was not an easy journey. But we thank you that, God, you saw something that we didn't see, something that was worth doing. And so, God, we thank you for the sacrifice that you've made. May you open up our hearts and our minds to your word today. And may your Holy Spirit speak to us, O God, in a new and fresh way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Feel free to be seated. When you look at something, you may see something. But then on the other hand, when someone else looks at that same thing, they might see something else right? For example, some might say the glass is half full, while others may say the glass is half empty. It depends on the perspective in which you are looking at it from. There are things that we can look at and think that we see it a certain way, and that is true, we probably do, but then we can look at it in a different way, from a different perspective, and see something completely different. Here's an example of what I mean. On the screen right now, you will see a picture of a swan. Do you see the swan? You see the swan, right? What if I told you that this wasn't only a swan, but it was also an elephant? Look at that. It's an elephant and it's a swan. You see, when you turn the picture upside down and you see it from a different perspective, then you see something that you didn't notice before. How about this one? On the screen right now, you'll see a picture of a giraffe. Do, do you see the giraffe? What if I told you that this wasn't only a giraffe, but it was also a penguin? When you turn it upside down, you see it from a different perspective. You see, in the same way, when we look at the cross, when we look at Good Friday, we look at it from a perspective of a human. When we say that Jesus was beaten, he was tortured, he was mocked, he was crucified, how is there anything good about what happened to him? You see, when we look at something, God sees it from a completely different perspective. What do you see when you look at it? Because God sees it in a different way. He doesn't see things the same way we see them. And so today I challenge you to look at this story from a different perspective. Look at it from what God sees when he looks at it. Pilate had Jesus flogged. That means that to flog was to beat someone with a whip or stick as punishment or torture hoping that this would satisfy Jesus' accusers, he asked the soldiers to go and to beat and flog Jesus. The flogging could have killed Jesus. The usual procedure was to bear the upper half of the victim's body, tie his hands to a pillar, and then whip him with a three-pronged whip with pieces of lead in the prongs, causing very, very deep wounds and cuts to the body. 
The number of lashes was determined by the severity of the crime that had been committed. Up to 40 lashes were permitted under Jewish law. So we look at that. Jesus beaten, how was there anything good about that? You see, when we see a flogged and beaten body, when we see a body that was wounded, that was tortured, God sees our healing. When we see that, God looks at it from a different perspective, and he sees the healing that is taking place. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 tells us, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. You see, it wasn't easy for Jesus to take a punishment that he didn't deserve. It wasn't easy for him to endure all that he did, but he willingly took it so that it could bring us healing. He willingly endured all that he did so that you and I today could experience healing. You see, we all are in need of healing. In different ways, our world needs to be healed. Our world needs to be healed from all that is going on in the past, present, and in the future. We're in need of healing for past hurts or abuse that we've gone through. We're in need of healing for the loss of a loved one that we've experienced, for an illness or disease, for the failure or fear of what has happened to us or the future. We are in need of healing in so many different ways. And our world right now is in need of healing from this pandemic and from all that it has caused for people. We are in need of God's healing. You see, the wounds of one man brought healing for so many. When we see Jesus' wounded body, God sees our healing. He sees it from a different perspective. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin, to live righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Some of us will experience that healing here on earth right now. Others of us will experience that full, complete healing one day in heaven. But regardless of when and where we experience it, by his wounds, you have been healed. Amen. Amen. Even though the Roman soldiers were only asked to flog Jesus, they went beyond their orders and what they were asked to do. You see, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, to be the Savior of the world, and the fact that he was God himself in the flesh. The soldiers mocked, mocked him by placing a crown of thorns on his head to cause him pain and dressed him with a purple robe on his shoulders to mock his claim of authority. We look at that. And when we see a crown of thorns, 
God sees it from a different perspective. He sees a crown of righteousness. When we look at a crown of thorns that Jesus wore, God sees a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says, And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but it's for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. He sees a crown of righteousness. Jesus was and is all that he claimed to be. He told the truth about who he was from the very beginning. But the people chose not to accept him because he wasn't the kind of Messiah and Savior that they expected him to be. He didn't look the part. He didn't dress the part. He didn't have the kind of authority that they expected a king and a savior would. And even though the crown of thorns that the soldiers gave him was meant to mock him as being king, what they didn't realize was they were unknowingly crowning him and acknowledging his kingship. By crowning him with the crown of thorns, they were still acknowledging his kingship and who he truly was and is. As the songwriter says, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross not only gives us salvation, but it gives us the opportunity to press on towards the prize that awaits us one day in heaven. God wore the crown of thorns so that one day you and I can wear a crown of righteousness. Amen. The scripture tells us that along with the crown of thorns that the soldiers gave him, they also put a purple robe on him. Now, to you and me, that might not seem like anything significant. It may not seem like anything important. But when we see a purple robe, when we look at that purple robe that was put upon him, God looks at it and he sees the king of kings. The king of kings. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19, we're told there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. You see, in Bible times, purple dye was so expensive. Any color, indeed, any kind of dye was expensive, but especially purple. And it was only used by people of high status. Thus, it became a symbol for power, wealth, authority, and royalty. God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They not only crowned him and acknowledged his kingship, but by putting the purple robe on him to mock him, they acknowledged his power and his authority over all things. There is none like him. He is the one true living God. God has no rival. He has no equal. There is none who is like 
him. He is God and God all by himself. And that means that he has ultimate power and authority over all things, over your situation, over what you're going through right now, over your hurts and your temptations, over your circumstances and your finances, all that we go through, he has ultimate power, authority, and control over. And it's demonstrated so many times in the Bible how we see God's power and authority played out in the miracles that he has performed, in the things that he has said, that nature and elements are at his command, that he is the one who speaks and it happens. There is power in his words and there is power in the name of Jesus. He is the king of kings. He takes the weak and he makes them strong. He takes the weary and he gives them rest. He takes the broken and he restores. All honor, glory, and power goes to him, our king. So let me ask you, have you crowned him the king of your life? Have you given him the power and the authority to say, I surrender all. I give you full ownership. I acknowledge who you are, and I give you that authority over my life. Have you made him the king of your heart? If you haven't, then today there is no other better day than today to give him that kingship of your life. Many people just see a man named Jesus, but we see our God and King. When Jesus arrived at the place of his crucifixion, they nailed him to the cross, causing agonizing pain and a slow death. Any logical person would look at this and wonder, why? Why would he go through all of this when he didn't deserve it? Why would he allow them to crucify him when he did nothing wrong? When he was able to stop it and command his angels to come, why would he do it? You see, we ask that question of why Jesus would take our place. Why he would endure the punishment that we deserve to get. And the simple answer is because of his great love for us because of his great love for us. When we see nail-pierced hands and feet, when we look upon the sacrifice that Jesus made, God looks and he sees true love. He sees what true love looks like, the sacrifice that Jesus made. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, the love that God has for us and for all of his people and creation is so overwhelming, yet it makes no sense that while we were still sinners, meaning before we ever chose him, he chose us. You see, in our world today, and, and probably always, love has always been a big thing. 
It is a human need that we need to be loved, that we need to love and be loved. You look at movies and music, television shows and books, and some of the central themes that you will find in almost all are, is love, right? A song about love or someone falling in love or looking for love or pursuing love, whatever that is. It's because we are people in need of love. And see, the, what we see and what we look at as true love is not God's definition of true love. God's definition of true love is going that extra mile for us, is doing what he did. I don't know if people still do this, but there was, there was a thing that, you know, if kids come up to you and they say, you know, mommy or daddy or grandma or grandpa, how much do you love me, right? And you would go, I love you this much. When we go to God and we say, God... How much do you love us? God says, I love you this much. That he would stretch out his hands. That he would willingly give up his life. Amen. That he would be nailed to the cross because of his true love for you and for me. When we see those nail-pierced hands, God sees true love. Have you experienced that true love that God has to offer you? Have you experienced that overwhelming, that never-ending, that love that never changes, never fades, that is unconditional? Because he has so much love to give us, and he wants us to stand and accept that love from him. On the cross, where Jesus' blood was shed and poured out, the sacrifice that we needed was made. And when we see shed blood, when we see Jesus' shed blood on the cross, God looks at that blood and he sees forgiveness. He sees the forgiveness that we are in need of. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17 tells us that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We have forgiveness because of Jesus' sacrifice. We're all sinners. We've all done wrong, and we're in need of being forgiven. You see, before Jesus' death on the cross, for people to be able to have been forgiven, they needed to make an animal sacrifice. The idea behind the sacrifice, particularly blood sacrifice, that was required for the substitution of one life, that is the animal, for another life, that is the sinner. It was that sacrifice that was necessary because of sin. Failure to obey God's command or his laws or deliberate efforts to disobey God created an offense or we could say a debt that could not be settled by mere apology. It created a debt that we owed that just saying sorry or apologizing for could not suffice. So let me put it to you this way. The damage was almost like we could say a window that was shattered, right? The damage that was done. Throwing a rock through a window, committing an offense, shattering that window and breaking it. Forgiveness for throwing the rock doesn't fix 
the shattered window. The sacrifices that were made became the payment for the window, so to speak, a symbolic settling of accounts and assurance of the forgiveness that God was willing to give. This system that was in place prepared God's people for the rest of the world and the rest of the world for the grand sacrifice that God's own son would give once on the cross as payment and settlement for sin. His death demonstrates the guarantee of God's forgiveness, paying our debt that we could not afford. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 say, For him, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God has given us full forgiveness through the shedding of his blood. Because of Jesus' blood that was shed, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Our relationship can be restored with God. That means that sin no longer separates us from God. It no longer holds us back, but we can come into personal relationship with God. We can have an intimate and personal relationship with him. And so if we can have that intimate and personal relationship with him now, the question is, do you have that relationship with him? Have you experienced God in a personal way? I'm not talking about experiencing God from someone else's point of view or someone else's relationship, but have you personally accepted him? He is ready and he is willing to forgive us. He is ready to forgive us of the sins that we've been holding on to for so long. He is ready and willing to wash us clean, to make us new. He pays the price for our sins. He has paid it all, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or where you've been. Sin no longer needs to stand in your way. At the cross, by the shedding of his blood, his love ran red so that our sins could be washed white. We are forgiven because of Jesus. Amen. 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 The place of the skull, or in Hebrew as it's called, Golgotha, was probably a hill outside Jerusalem along a main road. Many executions took place there by the Romans so that it could be an example to the people. You see, when we look at the place of the skull, or in other words, Golgotha, when we look at this place, a place of fear, a place of terror, a place where people did not want to go or experience, God sees it from a different perspective. God sees a place where it is finished where it is done, where it is finished. As I previously mentioned that there was a system in place for sacrifices to be made in order for one to be atoned for their sin. It was only through this animal sacrifice could a person be clean 
before God by offering the sacrifice. But the problem was that people continually sinned and they continually sin now. And so sacrifices needed to continually be made. What Jesus did on that cross was offer himself the perfect spotless lamb in our place so that he needed to die once and for all for the punishment of all sins, past, present, and future. He became the ultimate sacrifice for us. The word finished is translated the same way, meaning paid in full. Jesus came to finish God's work of salvation, to pay the full penalty for our sins. With his death, he was able to pay that price. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says he canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. He canceled all that was against us. He paid the full price. He covered the bill. He took care of it. We no longer owe anything to Satan. God has paid that price and has set us free. It is finished. The sacrifices, it's finished. The sin that had its grip on us, finished. All that stood in our way from a relationship with God, finished. Living in bondage is finished. It is finished. God had paid the price to set us free. The crucifixion was a form of Roman execution. The condemned man was forced to carry his own cross along a main road to the execution site. The cross was a symbol of shame and embarrassment, a shame that no one wanted to endure. Death came by suffocation because of the weight of the body. It made breathing difficult, and so it was very difficult to breathe and pull yourself up when your hands were nailed and your feet were nailed. And so the death was not only slow, but it was painful. You see, when we look at the cross, we see that suffering, we see that pain, we see that terror because it was not a good symbol to endure. And so we can look at the cross and see those things, but when God looks at it, he sees it from a different perspective. When God looks at the cross, he sees a way to spend, a way for us to spend eternity with him. That's what he sees. He sees a way. He sees a way for his people to be able to spend eternity with him. Before they died, Muhammad said, I don't know the purpose of life. Buddha said, seek for the truth. Confucius said, I am not the way. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through me. It can't be made, my friends, any more clear. Jesus is the only way of salvation. He is the only way to heaven. Salvation is found in no one else, Acts tells us. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It is only 
only through Jesus Christ. It is only because of the sacrifice that he has made that salvation is possible, that there is a way now for us to get to heaven, and his name is Jesus. He gives us hope. What Jesus chose to do on the cross by giving up his life was no light task, but he did it because of love. There was no other way, so he made a way by giving himself. He made himself the way so that we could get to him. He laid down his life so that we could experience eternal life. Do you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him? Are you believing in him? Are you acknowledging who he is? Because you see, Easter's not about the Easter bunny. Rather, it is about a lamb that laid down his life for all of us. He paid that price for each and every one of us. He did it because he saw it from a different perspective. I want to tell you a story real quickly about a man who wrote this letter. And I've mentioned it before a few years ago, but I, I believe it illustrates so beautifully this point today. He writes, my mom only had one eye. I hated her. She was such an embarrassment. She cooked for students and teachers to support the family. There was one day I remember during elementary school where my mom came in to say hello to me. I was so embarrassed. How could she do that and embarrass me? I just ignored her and I gave her a very hateful look and ran out. The next day at school, one of my classmates said, Ew, your mom only has one eye. I confronted her that day and said, Listen, if you're going to make me a laughing stock, just leave me alone. You should just go and die. I want nothing to do with you. My mom did not respond. I didn't even stop and think for a second what I was saying. I was just so full of anger and hate towards her. I was oblivious to her feelings. I wanted to get out of that house and have nothing to do with her. So I studied real hard. I got a job and an opportunity to go abroad. Then I got married, bought a house, and had kids of my own. One day my mother came to visit me. We hadn't seen each other in years, and she hadn't even met her grandchildren yet. She stood by the door, and my children laughed at her, and I yelled at her for coming over uninvited. I screamed at her, how dare you come to my house and scare my children? Get out of here. I don't want to see you. And to this, my mother quietly answered, oh, I'm so sorry. I may have gotten the wrong address, and she disappeared out of sight. One day, a letter regarding my school reunion came, so I decided that I would go to the reunion. After the reunion, I decided that since I was in the area, I would just stop by the old house just out of curiosity. My neighbor said that my mother had died. They handed me a letter that she wanted me to have. It said this, My dearest son, I think of you all the time. I'm sorry that I came to your house and that I scared your children. I was so happy when I heard that you were coming for the reunion. I fear that I may not be able to get out of bed to see you. I'm sorry that I was a constant embarrassment to you when you were growing up. I know that with one eye, I was very ugly 
and that you were ashamed of me. I heard you and your friends, the times that you mocked me, but I want you to know that I forgive you. You see, my son, when you were very little, you got into an accident and you lost one of your eyes. As a mother, I couldn't sit back and watch you grow up knowing that you would be mocked, insulted, made fun of, rejected, and ridiculed. I couldn't stand to watch you go through all of that. And so I decided to give you one of my eyes. I decided that I was going to give you my eye. I know that you didn't understand, but I want you to know that I chose to do it. I willingly chose to endure the pain so that you could have a better life. With all my love, signed, your mother. You see, what that mother did for her son was exactly what Jesus did for us. He willingly chose to do it. He willingly chose to endure all that he did so that we wouldn't have to. He willingly chose to take all the mockery, all the shame, all the embarrassment, all the insults, everything that was ugly so that we could experience everything that was beautiful. Jesus knew exactly what he was purchasing that day. He knew exactly what he was getting. He saw it from a different perspective than what we might have seen it. He took all the bad of that day so that today we could call it good. When you look at the cross, what do you see? When you look at the cross of Jesus, what do you see? Because when God looks at it, when God looks at the cross, he doesn't see that. You know what he sees? He sees what's coming. He sees the empty tomb. Let us pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, indeed, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for all that you have done for us, many things that we don't understand and reasons we'll never know why. But because of your great love, you see things from a different perspective than how we see them. And all we can say, Lord, is thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, that your body was broken and your blood was shed so that we could experience forgiveness, so that we could be reconciled to you, O oh God, and experience salvation and to accept that gift that you have provided for us of eternal life. And so, God, we thank you for the promise of heaven. We thank you that through your death and your resurrection, you have made eternity possible for each one of us. And so, Lord, we look to you and we look to the cross and we say thank you. Thank you for the price that you have paid. And indeed, God, we thank you, God, for all that you have done for us. In the powerful name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.